0: Awesome. Thanks, Denise. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, Denise wrote that herself. She's a talented, uh, talented individual to not only be able to sing like that, but to be able to write as well. That's a whole other uh, talent and skill. So thank you. In this pandemic time, we do have good news. Uh, the good news uh, of Jesus Christ. And as a church, as the body of Christ, we have an opportunity to share good news with the world. We were just watching that video, and, and Nate, our organist, said, I'm just realizing how appropriate those lyrics are for this time. So thank you again, Denise, for sharing that. I don't know if, if you could tell on TV, it looks like Randy and his beard were just hanging over Aaron's shoulder, but that's not true. He was like 12 feet away. It's a it's a camera trick, okay? So we are social distancing except for the Le- 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 Legrones who live together because they're married. So uh, please know that we're taking every precaution that we can, and Our Corona advisory team uh, is gonna meet this Tuesday night and you'll be hearing something on Wednesday about when we are going to gather again in person. Uh, But it's important to note that during this time, we never closed the church. Church was never closed. The building, yes, we said people shouldn't come and gather, but the church goes on. We're not really reopening the church. The church was never closed to begin with. All we're gonna do is, figure out some safe ways that we can gather once again as God's children, as God's family of faith here on this corner once again in person. It'll be within, you know, a few weeks, um, I'm hoping. So uh, keep praying that, uh, that, that that day will come soon. A few other kind of housekeeping things I want to mention. These beautiful flowers that were uh, given in memory of Wilma Savage by her daughter, Charlene. Uh, Wilma would have been 100 years old this Tuesday, uh, and she Uh, died a a couple years ago. I still remember uh, her smile well and visits with her at the Blakefords. So uh, in honor of the saints who've gone before us, we say thank you uh, for their legacy. I also wanna mention uh, the the Frost family, Ron and Tina and Haley have been helping us on Wednesday nights with our meals for years, obviously not in the last few months, but for years they have given uh, selflessly of their time and their talent to help feed us. Um, It's so important for us to to gather as a family of faith and to share a meal, a delicious meal, around the table. And I can't wait to do that again. But we had planned on recognizing the Frost family just to say thank you for their years of service in in engendering fellowship among our family of faith. So uh, we're going to send this to you uh, by mail tomorrow, uh, Frost family. But thank you so much uh, for all of your contributions. Today, we're going to continue to walk through the book of Acts. We've been. Uh, reading this beautiful true story, a true history of how the church was born and how it was sent forth into the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And last week we saw how Peter and John had gone into the temple and they had spoken the the power of the the name of Jesus. Excuse me. They had spoken the power of the name of Jesus over a man who'd been born lame. He'd never walked a step in his life. And after they spoke that power over him, the, the guy just sat there and Peter pulled him up and said, you're healed, man. Trust me. And he pulled him up and the man stood to his feet and immediately his ankles and his legs became strong and he started jumping around the temple and praising God. And we, we saw the fallout from that, uh, that Peter gave a sermon uh, right after that. And after people realized what was going on, the Lord had done this they, they began to join the church and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was a, a constant state of revival. Things were going great. It was such an exciting time. Thousands of people who were turning to Christ. What a, what a fun and exciting time for First Baptist Church Jerusalem. But God had other plans for that church as well. Plans that weren't always so fun or or so celebratory, some plans that would require great sacrifice and suffering. But the thing is, those plans would serve to spread the gospel into every corner of the globe in just a few short years. You know, we're gonna dive into this text today and see how God's plans aren't always our plans, but God's plans are best, we can trust that. Let's look at Acts chapter four. Remember that, that Peter had, had just given his second sermon now on the temple grounds. The, the first sermon had been right after the Holy Spirit showed up and he was explaining to the crowds what was going on, that God the Spirit was now filling the believers of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus. And we know that after that first sermon, 3,000 people were added to the roles of First Baptist Jerusalem on that glorious day. The second time, as, as Peter preached about Jesus, he had the, the living proof of the man who had just been healed uh, standing right next to him. And what happens again, thousands respond. And even though Peter and John are arrested here by the temple police and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, we, we see here that 5,000 men were in the church at that time. So it's a mega church. There's probably 10,000 people in this massive A movement of what God's Spirit is doing in the hearts of believers in Jerusalem. It's a revolution. So, the old powers that be, the old guard, the Sadducees, this was a a sect of of Judaism that that really were about power and control. They were affluent, they were in tight with the Romans, they kind of had some mutual agreements for how they could govern Jerusalem. and, And they controlled the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a a group of 70 men plus the high priest, so 71 men that were kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. They were the ultimate authority for all matters concerning the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. And the Sadducees really owned that group. And the Sanhedrin uh, was really bothered by what was going on with this movement called Christianity. That They couldn't have this revolution that would come and overthrow their own influence or their own power, and they had carefully uh, crafted these deals with the Romans in order to stay in power and, and to keep their control over Jerusalem. And, and here's the great irony in this whole thing, okay? The, the Jewish and the Roman authorities, they had thought that this whole Jesus movement was over, right? They had killed him. He, what more trouble could he possibly cause if he was dead? It was, it was a done deal, right? But they never could have guessed, What would happen after the crucifixion. They thought they had won, but they never could have imagined that there would be a resurrection. They never could have imagined that there would be an ascension and ultimately the birth of a new movement called the church that would be empowered by the living spirit of God himself. They had no idea what was coming. And think about this. Just In a few hundred years after this, the Roman Empire would crumble to nothing, but the church of Jesus Christ will have spread into every corner of the world at this point. You know, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, he famously once wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, God's kingdom doesn't come and expand through human might or through military power or political will. The the kingdom of God expands through ways that we don't understand. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that, who works in these ways that are infinitely higher than our ways and infinitely greater than our ways. The Spirit works powerfully through acts of love and suffering. Personal suffering, we're gonna see that reality play out over and over again through the book of Acts as we see the gospel continue to spread in power. So apparently when Peter and John are arrested, it was evening, it was too late in the day for the Sanhedrin to to be called to order and to have a trial. So they had to wait in jail until morning. They probably had the the beggar, the lame man with them as well because he appears with them the next day in court. So look at verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they, sat, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So you see that this family, this high priestly family, Annas used to be the high priest, but he's still kind of like the godfather. He's still the dawn of the priestly family. Caiaphas was the the real high priest, that was his son-in-law. And you got John and Alexander, they're all part of the same family. And it's this blue blood kind of aristocratic, powerful, wealthy, affluent family that's still running things. They're part of that Sadducee group. And they had distorted God's good purposes for the priesthood to minister to the people of God. They They had distorted that for their own personal gain and advantage and comfort. And now they question these simple rule fishermen. How did you heal this man? By what power did you do this thing? how did you do this, this trick? The whole town's talking about it. We all knew this guy. We saw him day by day in the temple. What was the trick? How did you manage to heal him? And it was a trap. Because if Peter couldn't prove that it was by the power of Yahweh, Almighty God, the one true God, then the Sanhedrin had the biblical authority according to Deuteronomy to put them to death because they would have been using some foreign deity. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been in Peter's shoes, I'm sure I would have gone into self-preservation mode immediately, right? I would have said, yeah, okay, the healing was totally by the book, nothing heretical to see here. It was all good and according to the law. You have nothing to worry about. But Peter this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's these beautiful prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures in Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28 about how God will craft this cornerstone that will be the key to his plan of salvation, that he's gonna use this one key component, this cornerstone, in order to bring this fallen world back into himself. But those prophecies stated that the the precious cornerstone would be rejected by the very ones whom he was trying to save. Those who would try to build their own salvation have no need for a, a foreign object cornerstone inserted into their own lives. So this cornerstone is the, the, the thing that holds the whole structure of God's salvation together in his plan to, to redeem this fallen world. And Peter says that not only have these guys missed the cornerstone, not only have they rejected the cornerstone, but they also played their part in killing him. You know, what what is he thinking? No one talks to the Sanhedrin like this. Is he crazy? Why is he saying these things that are so, uh, you know, blasphemous and so inflammatory? You know, the original charge that the Sanhedrin had brought against Peter and John was that they were preaching about the resurrection. And, And the, you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in supernatural things like resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in these kind of miracles. So they said, stop preaching these things, but What does Peter do in verse 10? Look at the end of verse 10 again. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. He just throws it back out there. God did this. It's true and it's good news. Peter is compelled by love. It's really an invitation. It sounds harsh, you know, whom you crucified, but he's extending to the Sanhedrin An opportunity to believe in the name by which, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. It's really a loving act, an act of grace and mercy on Peter's part at this point. And he doesn't back down. I love the the Tom Petty song. You know I'd work in a Tom Petty reference, Aaron. Uh, I I won't back down. He's not screaming in the song, he's not angry. He's just stating, I'm not going to back down. He says, Uh, Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. No, I won't back down. I won't be turned around. Gonna stand my ground. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down. Gonna stand my ground. And I won't back down. Well, I know what's right. I've got just one life in a world that keeps on pushing me around. Gonna stand my ground. And I won't back down. You know, I think Christians could really learn a lot from that song and from the attitude with which Petty sings it. There's a certain kind of boldness that's required to hold on to what we know to be true in the midst of a world full of competing truth claims. You know, as Christians, we follow Ephesians 4.15, which says, speak the truth in love. We must be compelled and motivated by love for our neighbors, love of God, We can't speak the truth from a place of fear or from a a, a desire to dominate or to win. We can't speak the truth for any other reason than love. That's when truth speaking is most effective, when we speak it in love. So Peter's really giving this Sanhedrin this loving, gracious move of, of inviting them to believe in the name of Jesus, but it's also an incredible act of bravery You know, the New Testament Greek has a a word for this kind of bravery. It's called paration. Paration is this confidence or boldness in the face of persecution or opposition. Look at verse 13. Now, when the Sanhedrin saw the, the paration, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, exhibit A of the Holy Spirit's work, the power of Jesus' name, they had nothing to say in opposition. What could they possibly say when there's healing right in, in front of their faces? And you see this strong class elitism. There's classism going on here because it says they perceived that these were uneducated, kind of rural country bumpkin is kind of the idea here. These. These are highly trained, highly respected, professional religious people who are really snobs at how they look at the disciples of Jesus, but they can't believe the the boldness, the paration of these disciples. They're astonished. They're, They're stunned into silence. They can't think of a rebuttal again because the beggar, the healed beggar was standing right there in their midst as well. So go to verse 15. So what a sad situation here. This Sanhedrin who's been confronted with a a miracle of God and his power instead of acknowledging this mighty act of God in their midst, they instead choose to hold on to their fear and to choose this petty uh, move to try to squash the rumors, to try to, to silence the disciples and they issue a gag order and they make threats. If you guys come back here, you're really gonna pay for it now. So how sad that they're so intent on protecting their own precious power and their own control that they miss what God is doing in their midst. Instead, they could have been like the lame beggar who jumped for joy all around the temple and praised God. Which one would you rather be? Which one sounds like a more fun life to live? One of miserable fear and control? or one of leaping for joy. Peter and John continue to speak boldly. They, they weigh their conscience about what they should say. Look at verse 19, they're not just being reckless. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. This reminds me of like the, the civil rights leaders Who, even though they were instructed by the government, you can't do this, they said, Which one's right to obey the justice of God or the unjust laws of the land? And Peter and John say, We have to obey our higher authority, what is ultimate in our lives. Again, that boldness, that paration, you just see it coming through in such powerful ways. There's a story uh, that we read in the history books about a a a great um, preacher named Peter Cartwright, who is uh, one of the great figures in the Second Great Awakening here in America. He was actually ordained in Nashville by William McKendry, Methodist minister, and Francis Asbury, another Methodist. Cartwright became a a great circuit riding preacher around uh, Nashville and Tennessee, but he eventually moved north because he was opposed to slavery. This is in the middle of the 19th century. And other leaders of his church begged him to, to tone down his rhetoric and you know, to, to not say anything inflammatory, but he continued to, to speak boldly against the evils of slavery. And one day he was informed that at his church in Illinois where he was pastoring, President Andrew Jackson would be attending his congregation that morning. And his deacons all said, look, Cartwright, you gotta not say anything. You know, he's from the South, he owns slaves, you just need to keep your, your, your rhetoric toned down today. And so Cartwright gets up in the pulpit and he simply says, I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. Everyone was shocked, and the leadership just about lost it. But he was speaking the truth in love. After the service, Jackson came up to Cartwright and shook his hand and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Cartwright didn't back down from the Holy Spirit conviction of the truth that he knew to be right. He wasn't concerned with his own reputation or trying to impress the president of the United States. He wasn't trying to make his church look famous or anything either. He was simply doing what the spirit told him to do. And again, here's the irony. He wasn't trying to impress the president, but the president was impressed. He was amazed at the paration, the boldness, that Cartwright possessed. The early church was faced with intense, continual opposition and persecution. And they responded with this beautiful integrity and boldness time and time again. And that's the Holy Spirit's power. So the Sanhedrin has no choice but to let Peter and John go. All they could do is threaten them. Look at verse 21, let's finish it out. When they had further, further threatened them, you guys are really gonna get it. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years of being lame, and God provided healing. I love that, that analogy. What a beautiful thing. Everyone's praising God because of this good thing that's happened. God gets the praise, and Peter and John go free. So how do we now, in in this crazy year of 2020, which none of us imagined uh, would, would end up like this, how do we cultivate, as Christians, paration in our own lives? How do we become these kinds of bold, confident people who say, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Where does that confident resolve to speak the truth in love come from? The answer is found in verse 13. Look at verse 13. When the Sanhedrin saw the paration of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a beautiful phrase. You know, the Sanhedrin knew Jesus. They put him on trial uh, right before his crucifixion. Remember that? They, they knew that Jesus was more than a man. They had witnessed the way in which he spoke and the way that he acted, which were supernatural. They were unlike any other human they'd ever encountered. And they were so threatened by him that they immediately called for his execution over and over again. And now as they heard Peter and John speak, they, they could tell that they had been not only with Jesus, but transformed by Jesus. They weren't just followers of Christ. They weren't just disciples of Christ. They had been buried and resurrected to a new life because of Christ. They'd been so filled with God, the Holy Spirit, at Pentecost that they had been imparted now with the presence of Christ. It wasn't that they used to follow Christ. They continued to be with Christ just like Jesus promised. You know, in Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul sums it up like this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what the Sanhedrin saw in Peter and in John. Alexander McLaren was a, a Baptist preacher. He was a Scottish preacher in the late 1800s. and He said, a soul habitually in contact with Jesus will imbibe sweetness from him just as garments laid away in a drawer with some perfume absorb absorb the fragrance from that beside which they lie. The Sanhedrin could smell the aroma of Christ on Peter and on John. The disciples were able to demonstrate this supernatural boldness in the, the face of opposing forces because they continued to walk with Jesus every day. They weren't afraid, they were settled, they were rooted and confident in Christ. Verse 13 says that the the, the result was that the Sanhedrin was astonished. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. You know, maybe, I I hope even some of them came to faith in Christ because of what they had experienced with Peter and John. You know, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that persecution is not something to, to be afraid of. It's, it's a sign of we're, we're on the right track. My friend Brad says that uh, sometimes if, if you're not buttoned up against the devil, it may be because you're going in the same direction. I think that's true. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it this way, in Matthew chapter five, verse 10. Blessed, that word for blessed means happy or even blissful. Blissful are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's it's a happy thing to experience persecution because you know that what you are gaining is the kingdom of heaven and that is infinitely greater than anything this world can throw at us. It is worth it. Do you believe that today? That suffering for Jesus' name and gaining the kingdom is better than gaining anything else in this world? So the question for us today is this. Do we bear the aroma of Christ in a world that has fallen because we've spent so much time with Christ? Are we being conformed to his image, to the way Jesus acts? Are we so filled with his presence that when people see us, they they see Christ? Do we back down when the world comes against us? Do we revert to fear and, and, and claim that we are ignorant when we have the truth? Are we walking so closely with Jesus that that we are bearing this truth out to the world in love? Let me give you three kind of obvious maybe, but really essential keys for walking with Jesus. Trey and I joke around about how youth ministry, all my applications and my teachings, I was a youth pastor for 12 years. I used to just always say, pray and read your Bible. That's where we kind of came down on at the end of most of our lessons. But it's so true. Through prayer and through scripture reading, We cultivate the aroma of Christ. But let me just give you these three keys, okay? Uh, First key to uh, cultivating a a deeper walk with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus on a daily basis. Every day, spend time in his word. Spend time in his word. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, go online right now, click on next steps on our website, woodmontbaptist.com. It says read through the Bible underneath there. Click on that, start today. It's a discipline But you'll be amazed at how the word of God, you put it up here and it just trickles down into here. It it has this effect of transforming our hearts when we study it and meditate on it because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Are you spending time in God's word? The second essential for walking with Jesus is spend time with his people. I know that's ironic and you're probably saying we can't spend time with his people right now. Nathan, the only people we spend time with are our little children who are driving us nuts in our homes these days, or with our roommate who I can't stand because he never does the dishes, or maybe you're single and maybe you're saying, oh, I just wanna spend time with people. Absolutely, Nathan, I wish I could. But let me ask you this, who are you spending time with on screens? What shows are you watching? Are they life-giving, are they edifying? What kind of people are you letting yourself be influenced by during this time? You know, iron sharpens iron. We, we become like those who we hang out with, whether that's digitally or physically. Something important to think about. Are we surrounding ourselves, even digitally, with people who are children of God? It's really important. The third key, is you have already guessed it, in how you walk with Jesus is to spend time with prayer. You know, try prayer journaling, do something different. Find a quiet place where you can go out and pray. Maybe quit putting your earbuds in when you go for a walk and just spend that time with the Lord in prayer. Find some way in this quarantine time where you can cultivate a deeper prayer life. Our prayer life is our connection to Holy Spirit power. It's our lifeline. There will be no power in our lives without prayer. That is the truth. I know these three things may seem obvious, but will you make a commitment today to do these three things daily, to really spend your time in God's word, to spend your time with God's people and to spend time praying to the Lord. If you will do those three things, I know it sounds formulaic, but it's true. If we will do these things, we will be able to cultivate the aroma of Christ as we spend time with him. And we will be a sweet fragrance to the world in which we live everywhere that we go. And we'll be able to do that with boldness as we speak the truth in love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the example of Peter and John, for their boldness that comes through your Holy Spirit, for how they they don't back down, but they they speak the truth in a loving way, at, at great personal risk to themselves, and yet things work out wonderfully because you are in charge, God. Help us to trust when, when times get scary in our own lives, when we're tempted to back down from speaking the truth. God, will you remind us that you are sovereign, you hold all things together, and no matter what happens, God, you're going to work all things together for our good, for those of us who are called according to your purpose. Lord, I, I know that during this quarantine time, a lot of people aren't able to feed themselves. They don't know how to begin to pray or how to read the Bible. I pray that you would help us all to deepen our discipleship and be able to worship uh, by ourselves or with our families, wherever we are, and be able to, to do that as we feed our souls with your good truth. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. We're gonna have a time of response now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no more important decision that you can make. It's, it really is the most important thing you can ever decide for yourself. What's ultimate in your life? What authority are you ultimately going to go to as the, that which matters most to you in your life? Maybe you're, you're building a foundation on sinking sand. Everybody's betting their life on something. If you know today that you need to give your life to Christ for the very first time, call the church, 615-297-5303, and just say, I'm ready to give my life over to Jesus, and someone will be happy to talk with you and pray with you about that. Maybe you have a, a prayer concern, uh, you want to fill out the digital connection card on our website, go to woodmontbaptist.com, let us know what's going on and how we can help you. You're not alone during this time, I know you may feel like it, but we are here for you both of our church family and our neighbors who may be watching this uh, on TV or online, we want to minister to you and with you during this time. So reach out and say, hey, and let us know what's going on. Maybe you're you're ready to be a part of Woodmont and you wanna join a small group. Our small groups are meeting on Zoom right now for at least a few more weeks. We invite you to, to, again, fill out the connection card and we plug you into a group and you can get to know some people and pray together and learn how to do life together. We, We believe in that in a big way here at Woodmont. Whatever it is that you need to do today, don't leave this broadcast until you've dealt honestly with the Lord who knows every hair on your head and still loves you more than you could ever ask or even imagine. We're going to sing this song of response. I invite you to, as we sing, you can sing along or you can just pray silently where you are, whatever it is you need to do, let's respond to the Lord now.